Welcome back to Range Anxiety, where I'm your angel, but I ain't no centerfold. And thanks to the Jay Gills Band for that fabulous track from the 70s. Um, all about magazines, really, <laughs> a bit like today. Because even though this is your, you know, 30 minutes of 30 years of tuning experience, there is a little bit of maybe 20 years of magazine contribution and editorial experience sitting in the chair talking to you as well. And the reason we're going to talk magazines today on Range Anxiety, and no, there's no Hobo and no Oscar with us today. <laughs> the, the band ain't back together. Um, is because there's been a significant uh, magazine death in the family, I suppose you could say. Great title, gone, gone, gone. Motor Magazine started out 68 years ago, right? Get that? That's a long time, right? That's even older than me, 68. Started out years ago. And I remember, uh, well, as a wee nipper, getting hold of a few copies of Modern Motor, as it was called. And I loved it. It was never quite, in my eyes, as good as Wheels Magazine. Um, well, not, at least not in the early days. And then and in the end, in the end, it just became a flog fest, in my opinion. Um, you know... And I'll explain why in a minute. But anyway, it's pretty sad that Motor's gone. You know, all of the titles I used to work for, Mainstream, died probably ooh, 10 years ago, 12 years ago. And they'd kind of shifted me to one side before then anyway because they didn't want to be paying freelancers if they could help it. it was just recycle old shit if you could. Um... And yeah, it, it, it's sad because there, you know, there is a staff of people that work on these magazines, and you know they've got families to feed, I suppose. And you know, there's not only the full-time staffers, there's the, the freelancers that were left, um, and also the photographers. Even though photographers are the biggest flogs of all, we'll get onto them a little bit later. Um, yeah, it's just sad. It's gone, shut, finished. And, you know, we found out on Friday, last Friday, and it was like late in the afternoon, just after a long boozy lunch, that the execs axed motor and it's gone. So that leaves us with one, one car magazine in Australia that's mainstream. Wheels magazine, of course, is also you know, probably what's left, the biggest aftermarket um, magazine or, you know, counterculture, old school custom V8 culture magazine. And that's Street Machine, which is, you know, Pretty good title. Um, but what do all of these titles have in common? I've worked for them all at some stage as a freelancer, never on full staff with any of them, but I have I have got my name in the in the credits of those magazines a few times, Wheels, Motor, and Street Machine. Um, and yeah, I mean, the guys at Street Machine now would probably, who I'd still know most of, would probably die with a leg in the air. You know, here I am, like, driving around Telstra's and Nissan Leafs, you know, and they're still, like, Reckoning that like a 289 Windsor's pretty cool and an LS is a new thing. Yes, it was new. Everything was new once. Even an LS1, 20-something, 5, 30 years ago was new. Um, but yeah, they're all getting on with it to a street machine. You know, I've seen the odd thing where they don't want to do it, but they've covered the odd Telstra conversion or some of their American magazine 
cohorts have. You know, like, I don't know what they call it, street rod, rat, grand touring, whatever. Just an old piece of shit with a modern driveline. You know, pro elite touring. They tow around uh, trailers and go drag. I don't bloody know. Anyway, I've been out of that scene for a long time. But I hope, you know, there's probably not a lot of hope for wheels and street machine upcoming because they're all owned by the same company. And motor, I believe, is just the tip of the iceberg. So why do magazines die? Well, people just don't buy them anymore. Um, and there's a lot of reasons why. A, they're expensive. And B, uh, back when I was working in the magazine industry and the internet was, you know, just an emerging thing, the whole consensus was, why would people... We used to print in Singapore. Um, and you know, used to, and I, th I think Motor and Wheels are printed locally, so it's quite quick. You know, it's only like two weeks, three weeks behind the times or a month. We were like three months behind the times, you know. So... Why would people wait for news that was three months old and pay for it when they could get it on the interwebs for free? I mean, exactly right. Why the hell would you? I mean, probably the most um, the most valid reason for buying a magazine is we did have an editorial credibility to a degree. Um, you know, there were sub-editors and editors and, and you know, fact-checkers even back then, and we had to do our own fact-checking, actually. And, you know, it was a lot more accurate than than some of this shit you see that's self-published now, which is just rubbish that people just make up. Clickbait, you know, I see it all the time, like recommended on YouTube. It's just like, really, you just made this clean up and there's, you know, 3.1 million views on it. You know, like Tesla releases new telephone uh, and they start with like breaking and game changed forever. And, you know, so there, we had an editorial... Um, integrity which self-publishing just doesn't have so you got to be very very careful what you watch on the old tube you know but yeah so three months behind the times um and unbeknownst to pretty much everyone uh, apart from those of us that have worked in the magazine industry is that it's a money-making business now the cheap flog mags i used to work for um we used to cater for all sorts of people from you know, flat earthers to flogs to fans to, you know, tech heads to wannabe race drivers, whatever. We used to use this thing called the print to pulp ratio. Now, I never really got into the, into the you know, business side of magazines. I was just a enough nuff that wrote some shit that they printed from time to time. That the idea was to pulp as few magazines, you know, as you could, which means if you if you printed 10,000, you know, you'd get that number down to where you had to throw away as few as possible because that's what would cost you money. So, you know, that's why you would see some of the titles I worked for, like your Hot Fours and your Zooms and your Street Commodores and your Billy Floggadores and, you know, Masturbational Gazette Monthly. You would go to the newsagent, back when those things were a thing other than for selling lotto tickets, you'd go to the newsagent and you'd buy one, get three free sort of thing. You know, they'd all come bundled together. Because it costs money to pulp the stupid things, right? So it was some some dude that sat in an office, and I think the guy that used to do it with uh, for for us, and I'm not mentioning any names. He was a he was a cock knocker extraordinaire, and he used to be in charge of some pool fencing company. So that made him an automotive editorial magazine bean counting expert. Um, and so his job was be to look at the sales figures and try and and, and 
get to the point where you wouldn't sell out, but you wouldn't have too many left. And that was a whole business of magazines. Now, when people stop buying them, those numbers are hard to get right. And when also people stop buying them, advertisers don't want to pay big money for pages because they do a circulation audit, your numbers drop, your advertisers drop, your numbers drop, and so on and so on it goes. It's called the death spiral. And pretty much since the end of webs came out and uh, people realised that it wasn't just a, you know, like a, a, a flash in a pan, like people talk about EVs being, that it was a real thing, uh, the death spiral commenced. So it was our job to try and keep everything as fresh and as relevant and, you know, make up as much shit as we could really to keep the advertisers going. And the last thing you could ever, ever, ever do was upset an advertiser, even if it meant uh, that you couldn't tell some of the facts. Who would have thought that in an industry where the advertisers are paying the publishing companies to pay us, that we, we would be heavily edited? And I believe that is the same for every car magazine still around. Some have more freedom than others, because they have more clout and they have more um, power, but the cheaper and more shitful the magazine was, the more you were on your knees in front of the advertiser reaching for the zipper. Now, I found this out the hard way a couple of times. Would you believe I managed to piss a few people off during my time writing for magazines? Never. Oh, screw them anyway. Um, the first one was uh, while I was writing about some coils. There were absolute coils. Go back to Sparky last episode. These coils were actually quite shit and didn't work on the car in question. And I mentioned the brand name. Well, it turned out that the whoever owned the brand owned several other brands that were a heavy advertiser in the magazine. And so I had to write some, get on my knees, assume the position, ask them uh, whether I had to be facing forward or backwards. I actually was made to ring the little catch fart that ran this importing company and apologise to him and beg for his forgiveness while he sat there and he gave me a tirade about disparaging his good name. And I pointed out just before the end of the phone call, well, they didn't actually work, these coils. What did you want me to say? You know what he said? I don't care that they don't work. We sell a lot of them. So, yeah, that was kind of like my, <laughs> my first taste of pissing off an advertiser and, you know, the guy with the pool fences made me, you know, ring this sodomist that, that that was selling these coils and various spark plugs and other things. And yeah, that was a big tough lesson for me. Um, I made sure I was a little bit more careful of what I said and I wouldn't say something was good if it wasn't good. I just, if it was shit, I'd just say nothing at all. Um, the second time, obviously, and I think we've covered this before, was when I pissed off um, one of my editors that was, what was he trying to do? He was trying to get Chrysler on board advertising and I was testing the, the brand new to Australia at the time, 300C, and I said it looked like kids had designed the dashboard with a Letra set kit. And it was true, it was shit. And from, yeah, I, I think I've said this story before, they kind of started calling me Slapdash Donnan and I simply didn't do any more work for Unique Cars magazine because I could have upset their... Uh, financial equilibrium. I don't even know if that's a thing anymore, is it? Since there's like, I think that went away a trading post or something. 
then who's going to pay to advertise in a magazine that takes months to come out when you can sell your shit on Gummers? The Nicks. Nicks, actually, Nick Gummers. Mm, reminds me of someone's favourite Swedish MILF, Streko. Um, yeah, so how did I get started in it? Well, I was running a business at the time. You know, I was a chip tuner in the 90s called Fueltronics, and uh, Hot Fours magazine had just started, and we'd done a, a conversion. My mate uh, Mark Tilbrook did all the work, and I did a bit of tuning on it. It was a late model water called Vassa Boxer Combi, and we junked the Subaru Liberty Turbo EJ. J20, were they? I don't know. Just a Liberty RS Turbo driveline in this thing. And a guy, the godfather of magazines in Australia, a top bloke, actually, and a guy that's no longer with us, Jeff Paradise. All my magazine mates will be welling up with a little bit of a tear in their eye now, but he was a really top bloke and really good to me, too. Guido Paradiso, he uh, got me, he found out we were doing this somehow um, through a photographer and said, look, you guys did it. Can you write? Can you spell your name? And I said, yeah, I'm not too bad at um, talking shit. And Guido got me to write the story on the Vassar Boxer. And he said, you know what, Mr. Donnan, you are very urbane. That's how he described me. And he goes, would you like to do some writing for us? And from there, it just sort of started. I started contributing and I was less and less interested in tuning cars. Well, it's amazing what you've got to go back to when the magazine shut down, isn't it? But yeah, so I started on and I, I got quite a good footing in Express Publications. Um, Jeff Paradise moved on to other things. But we got uh, in, inherited Zoom magazine or purchased it and Fast Fours and Rotaries and Street Commodores and High Performance Imports. And I was technical editor for most of them and editor at large. So I was quite large at the time for High Performance Imports magazine. And they were cool times. That was a good ride. I used to pump out four to five articles a week, mainly tech stuff. I used to do a lot of new car, or oh, new car, import features. Um, and I got to make some really good mates in, 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 the, in the industry, like um, my editor full of personality at the time, Ben Ellis, who was head of motoring group, I reckon, in the end, for Express. Uh, uh, Simon Telford, I think he runs Street Machine these days. All sorts of people we got. Wazza. Who doesn't remember Wazza? Um, <laughs> from Zoom. And, then, you know, there were some great people. Um, but it was, the, it was the locals you had to work with because, you know, we were never taken too seriously because we were South Australians and, and everyone that was big in the magazine game, look at that, fake hog. Oh, fake hog with open pipe. Oh, look, it's a fake hog cruise. I wonder if Easy Rider magazine's still going and Captain Good Vibes. Who knows? Anyway, where was I? Yeah, well, we were, we were South Aussies. And, you know, if you wanted to be one of the cool kids that got all the promotions and went to all the free lunches and free drive days, you had to be an eastern seaboarder and you had to be pretty good on your knees. I wasn't very good at either of those things. <laughs> I wasn't from the eastern seaboard. And so I got teamed up with a local photographer here, Guy Bowden. Um, some of you may know Guy. Uh, I'm not going to talk out of school about Guy. He was a good, good guy guy. And he was very... They're very passionate, but most photographers are. They're arty fucks, right? They, they, <laughs> they just do arty things, and you know they, they could see the world differently. Like they've been on the spectrum, and uh, he would keep me there for hours doing drive pasts and positioning cars. And you know that was one of the rules of, of car photography: is you don't you don't walk around the car and photograph it. You move the car around, right? And so there's always lots of moving around and putting things in order and 
you know, all sorts of things. And and <laughs> that's a magnet. Best car ever. Booyah. Um, guy invented this thing called the Dominator. And we had a car from a car yard we were shooting. What it was was big suction cups. Guy was big into the suction cup, you know, remote angle photography. And the Dominator was like a 20-foot javelin pole that was attached to the car by two suction cups. And he would, you know, off the front end up high and... You know, he'd have a remote shutter release and be taking pictures as I'm driving, trying to suck my 18 chins in and, you know, with my sonny's on. And it was all pretty cool. And I remember we put it on a RZ Supra one day and the wind caught it a bit and we didn't think much of it until we stopped on the side of the road. And those suction cups had actually dented the panels pretty badly. Yeah, that was the last time I, uh, <laughs> I wanted to use the Dominator. In fact, I never wanted to use the Dominator, it was bloody Bowden. So yeah, we had this sort of love-hate, love relationship where when we went out to do a drive and shoot together, you know, my focus was always driving the car and forming an opinion on the car. And Guy's focus was always trying to reel me in and get his job done, which was taking the photos. So yeah, there was always a bit of a struggle there. I remember we used to do some cool shit though. We did some really, really cool shit for um, Speed Magazine, which was probably the artiest of the car magazines at the time. It was beautifully done. I reckon uh, Kurt Dupre and, and Ian Kelly, still two names that are around today, uh, were in charge of that. And they, they did a very, very uh, cool job of that. And yeah, Bowden and I used to spend hours doing all of these shoots. I remember we had a brand new Buckle STI. We had a two three-year-old r34 gdr v spec what was the third car oh it was an evo 7 it was john munro my business partner's brand new evo 7 it was doug dynan's r34 gdr that became john munro's after that and it was uh, joanne day from s and j here in adelaide it was her brand new sti and i remember guy because photographers are flogs and they don't give a shit about your car Guy had them all doing nose to tail up this beautiful um, area at Selix there that was a photographer's dream down the south coast here. And I remember massive big stone chip right in the soft metal bonnet of the brand new bug eye. Oh, God, it was heartbreaking at the time. Really, really was. So back to more uh, pressing things. What actually killed motor? Well, no one bought it. Back in the day, I think the biggest selling it... Epicast edition ever was in the mid 2000s and the low early 2000s. It was like 65, 68, 70,000 copies or something. When it died, it was down to 7,000 copies. Why? Because no one gave a shit anymore. Why? Because advertisers were advertising more online and had less money for the magazine, which then means that less freelancers can be paid to produce local content and more shit is bought in from overseas in what's known as in the magazine game as syndication. What else killed it? Well, Holden and Ford killed themselves. And that whole magazine, Motor, more so than Wheels, Motor was built on meatheads wanting Holden versus Ford. And then once Holden dropped off, there was only so many times you could reheat a Mustang and put it on the front cover before it just went stale. Now, the Mustang was probably your last chance at selling magazines. There's a moment you put a Porsche or a supercar on the cover, no one buys it. That's a, that's a guaranteed way 
and making sure that you don't get any sales at all. So what does this all mean? Well, it really means that when Ford and Holden died, motor was always going to die. And so be it, quietly and slowly it is. So how long do I give wheels? I reckon wheels will make it to the end of... It actually happens quickly from here. I reckon to the end of 24, before everyone there is out of a job too. Um, street machine, I reckon, will go the longest because that V8 sort of meathead culture where it's LS the everything and Barra the everything. Uh, here we go. There's another one. Actually has like, they organise events and shit like, I don't know, all these drag weeks and crap like that. So it's, listen to that. It's more of a lifestyle than it is a rag you pick up and read on the shitter than throw out. So I reckon Street Machine, the meathead, the blower, burnout, some boobs, bullshit fest will actually outlast them all because it has a bit more style and a bit more originality and a bit more content. I just wish everyone involved would take a good bloody shave. You know who you are that I'm talking about there. So yeah, Street Machine to be the last one to turn out the lights and I believe they will exist in some way, shape or form with a more significant reader base online, but wheels and so on like who really needs it you've got like which car and drive and they're probably owned by the same people they do new car reviews sure the journalistic quality in a lot of cases is shit um but really i i really don't read car magazines anymore or, or online reviews looking for impressions from dickheads that are probably 20 years younger than me and are driven far less shit so what what i really want much slower shit so really what the Fuck, are they going to know anyway? They're going to know nothing. So I just look at the photos and look at the specs. Now, if I can do that for free, there's no way in the world that I'll be paying a bunch of vlogs that are interested in going to cheap track days or free track days at the Nürburgring by using their knees on their advertisers. Do you see where I'm coming from here? Yeah, I do. Now, I've got something interesting that I've got to watch later. Um... It was just, it was the guys at Book Club. Um, there's a couple of really big EV fans there now, like the Wonkster and um, I don't know, Tony Ambrosio, the cake decorator. He's, he's big into EVs now. And they, they posted, there's this thing, I think it's Paul Morris and the dude. No, uh, what's his name? Engel and the dude. The dude would be Paul Morris. And they do some... I don't know, video, YouTube thing, trying to remain credible in 2022. And they had Roland Dane and, and Jamie Wincup on there who are a, a bit more modern than, than the dude. Isn't that like a camel's dick or something, a dude? I don't know. I remember that from back in the day. Um, they both have EVs, apparently. Now, I haven't, I haven't read this yet. I haven't, I haven't ingratiated myself by watching, not read, by watching this YouTube video of Enforcer and the Dude and two of our biggest supercar names in the country with Telstras. But it could only mean that they're half smart, couldn't it? Uh, maybe, maybe not. Now, before we go today, I have been just looking at everything I can and looking at every possible timeline to work out where I'm, when I'm going to get this goddamn Model S plaid because I want it and I want it now. By having a look at some of the shit that's running at roll racing and winning it at the moment, I reckon 
a plaid with a bit of our magic dust, the secret sauce, special sprinkles on it, is gonna be almost a guaranteed winner. So we'll get back more of that soon, but thank you once more for tuning in and listening to Range Anxiety.